Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by my co-host from King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand, the Reverend Ian Reid, otherwise known formally as Rido. Rido, hi. Hi. I don't know if it's for- formally, but... Uh... No, probably not. Called but Rito, anyway, but... <laughs> anyway, so I'm, I'm being slightly facetious. And joining us today, gosh, I've got two Aussies on the show today. <laughs> oh, better look out. Joining us today from sunny Perth in Western Australia is our very special guest, Steve McAlpine, who's here to talk about bad guys and future-proofing the church and our cultural moment and all sorts of other stuff. Steve, hi, how are you? Yes, uh, good Good morning, good afternoon, good after tomorrow, whatever it is, time it is, and you're doing I'm, well. I'm, I'm meant to, um, I don't know what time it is here, about two o'clock in the afternoon. I meant to quote from your bo- online biography, which I loved. It says, um, Steve is approaching an age which would be a more than useful test batting average. <laughs> I love yeah, that. I better update that to say world record <laughs> <laughs> after Donald Bradman. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Donald Bradman, that was a great cricketer. Steve grew up in Northern Ireland, but is a West Aussie through and through. He has degrees in journalism and theology and enjoys combining the two through writing and blogging. Well, why wouldn't you? Especially on matters of church planting and cultural negotiation for Christians in the increasingly complex West. Steve, that was your cue to come in. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, ta-da. Yeah. <laughs> now, tell us about the City to City Australian yes. ministry. What's happening with that? I'm working for City to City Australia at the moment. And uh, what I'm doing there is, uh, I guess, in the sense that Tim Keller's whole ministry uh, was about how do we contextualize the gospel to where we are in such a way that uh, while the hearer uh, might hear something they don't want to hear, they'll at least hear it. Uh, so how do you do receptor hearer? And so my role has been to be the, uh, it sounds a, an interesting title, the Director for Cultural Engagement for City to City Australia. Uh, which basically at the moment is involving helping churches and Christian schools in particular navigate the cultural moment because Christian schools find themselves, particularly Christian schools, having been exposed to getting government money and needing accreditation, a very different landscape to what they experienced when they started 40 years ago in terms of where the culture is going and what the culture views as acceptable for, of, a, of a group that you would give government funding to. And that's been a big issue. Yeah, sure. One of my questions I was going to ask you, what are some of the problems that church is facing in Australia in terms of the culture, be they legal challenges or questions of free speech? Well, I think what's happening, it, various jurisdictions in Australia have uh, different legislations. And there's been a failed attempt over the past few years to get a uh, religious uh, discrimination bill up and running, which hasn't happened. And I don't know if there's the will for it. And that national legislation would override some state legislations, which at the moment are saying things like Christian schools can only staff Christians in roles that are specifically Christian, i.e. the religious education, et cetera, et cetera. So it would break down the what I call the uh, sort of the the framework of a an alternate ethical community of a Christian school being all Christian staff. I think that the key issue really is do churches Will, will churches come under that same framework? In places like Victoria, uh, where there's an anti-conversion therapy laws coming into place, the government has met with Victorian churches to say, we might even have to look at your sermons. I'm going, well, that's an interesting take uh, on how things are going to be. So Christians are nervous. But what I think most of all, having been a pastor for a long time, is that people going to work on Monday are thinking, how do I navigate uh, a much more hostile setting where my orthodox Christian values are now at odds 
not just at odds, but seen with uh, quite a level of suspicion by the HR department. In terms of sexuality, primarily, identity and gender issues seem to come to the fore all the time at the moment. I think I was always seen with some suspicion by my HR department at Radio New Zealand years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Rito, can I just bring you in? The New Zealand context in schools, do you want to um, speak into that? Yeah, similar, I think, to Australia, but probably I think it's come on here quicker than people have expected, where in Australia it's kind of been a slow kind of burn, where in New Zealand it was kind of nothing, now it's everything. And I think and it's catching a lot of schools out where they're not quite prepared uh, and they don't realise realize how hostile the culture actually is to them. And so uh, my family's involved with the Christian school and just kind of having discussions there, particularly with the uh, kind of the management and the governance there saying, actually, we need to be on the front front foot here and, and thinking, how do we how are we going to deal well with with this and how, how are we going to approach it in both a Christian way but also a way that will engage the culture well? Yes, I was going to ask you, Steve, because I know you write about this in your Bad Guys book, how do we engage or can we? Can we still yeah, engage with our culture? I think that's the question you posed, wasn't it? Can we still engage with it? Yeah, and I think... Um the uh, great American philosopher, poet, Mike Tyson, uh, said that everyone, everyone's got a plan until they get a punch in the mouth. And what I think is we live in a hostile culture generally in terms of dial, uh, conversation. Uh, it, it's it's uh, withered. Goodwill has withered as sides polarise in what is the culture wars. And Christians are going, well, I'm, the culture wars isn't everything because Jesus is coming back, Right. So, but how do I navigate that space? And what's happened, I think, is that uh, Christians are finding that they can tick all the boxes of being a good citizen, but on these issues around sex and gender and the exclusivity of Jesus as well, I think that's part of the issue as well. They're finding that that's not only seen as silly, but sort of unsafe. And how do you navigate that space? But most people, I think, aren't hostile to Christianity. They just don't know a lot about it. And so they'll read at the media level what is happening. And most schools are afraid of being on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age or whatever. For, And here's the key. It, student power has taken over from teacher power in these settings because the way conversations and voices are changed now is that institutions are viewed with suspicion and victims are given a higher voice uh, and perceived victims. So if young people in a school who are want to, identify in a different way sexually, go to the media and say, our Christian school is stopping us doing that. The first port of call isn't to go to the school and ask the question. The first port of call is to put it on the front page and then doorstop the principal the next day who looks like a rabbit in the headlights, right? Yes. yes. And so so that shows that the way the conversation is being framed, uh, schools are nervous and uh, boards are concerned about the risk aspect of it. But, But here's the irony. At a time when secularism is supposedly taking off, more people who are not Christian are signing their kids up to Christian schools than ever. In fact, you can't get teachers to staff Christian schools at the moment because the growth rate is so high. Something's going on underneath the surface in our culture that people are maybe not able to articulate, but they know there's something wrong and they know there's something about the way Christians are doing life together that seems to have some of the answers. 
even if they don't agree with us on the sexuality and gender stuff. Yes, this goes on on the talkbacks all the time in New Zealand, doesn't it, Rito? You know, people saying, um, recognising the fact that, that, that the church schools have some sort of values that they're teaching children that might be positive. Uh, do you think non-Christian folk are worn out by our culture and the secular narrative too, Steve? It's not just us, it's everybody's worn out. <laughs> I read an article the other day that said we've reached, in the Times of London, we've reached peak woke. And what they're meaning is uh, the culture war thing of just slaying everyone and dragging them to the public square. People are going, ain't nobody got time for that now. And, you know, it's like we need to get on with life and we need to find a way to navigate our deep differences. So what you get in these kinds of things, is you get extremes on left and right and you get the exhausted middle. And eventually the exhausted middle is going to say, we're not putting up with that anymore. So uh, what you'll probably find is that, some of the extremes will dial down, though it will still keep going in the same direction, I think, but the consequences might be different. But the fact is the people most hostile to church in all the stats show that the people my age, 55 to 70-year-olds, I'm at the low end of that, uh, so, but because we people have, you know, remember the time you had to go to church and listen to a haranguing sermon and sit there in an itchy shirt? Well, no one wants to do that. But no one has done that for a couple of generations now. 18 to 34-year-olds maybe have complex hang-ups about church and its views on sexuality, but they have no experience of Christians or church, church life at all. So that could ironically flick things around. I tend to say, keep your powder dry, Christians. Um, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't, go, don't give an answer just because someone asks you. Figure out whether they're asking you in good faith. We're not required to give an answer for the bigotry that we have, we're required to give an answer for the hope that's within us. So if people think, well, your hope looks different, give them an answer. If they think you're a bigot, they just want to taint and taunt you, just that's where you walk away and, and you know, put down the keyboard. <laughs> yeah, Ian, do you want to um, ask a question, feed into that, make a response? Where, where are the opportunities, do you think, for the church and Christians mm. as a whole, um, because I think that this is the, the part of the problem with the culture wars is that both sides end up in hopelessness and the church needs to navigate a pass of hopefulness. Uh, but, you know, I, I minister in regional New Zealand and at times it feels like people are very hopeless uh, about the way the world is going, particularly where New Zealand is going. How, how, where are the opportunities? How do we provide hope and, you know, how do we encourage people to do that? Well, I think it's going to start at grassroots level that people who are feeling hopeless see hope-filled people, Christians, and they see them in community. So, and I don't mean they have to be in their church, but if you're having a dinner party with a couple of Christian families and one or two non-Christian families, I reckon they should be able to see the difference. And if they don't, and by difference, I don't mean just that they can say, well, here's what Christianity is about, but the way they parent, the way they uh, aren't fearful of things, what they talk about, uh, the way they engage with each other as couples, if the families, the way they include the lonely in their lives, the the non-married, the divorced, the single, the same-sex attracted, the people they don't necessarily look like they run in the same lane. And it's interesting, and I'm going to say this because I'm a runner and all runners talk about running, uh, which makes them insufferable. But <laughs> I go to a few running events and I've noticed how isolating it is if you don't know anyone. Uh, it's people are not trained to look out for the outsider. And church people are, which feels weird sometimes if you go into a new church, but there's something about being a Christian that just hits different. It just does. 
And mm. I think that's probably key to it, that at long-term, low-key relational level, Christians are going to look different. They're going to have hope and they're going to be people who lean into costly relationships that aren't just for their benefit. Do you want to carry on, Ian? Yeah, how does that, you know, particularly we're seeing Christians who aren't full of hope at the moment. How 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 do we encourage that, you know, kind of and create a culture of, hey, you know, kind of let's get on with it? Because it can be tiring as a pastor const- constantly kind of hearing people's complaints about the way the world is going and trying to refocus what they, where, where they should be. Well, counterintuitively, unless you're preaching a great big eschatological picture of the age to come, for 30 years it was out of vogue. Kingdom coming here, get on with it, life down here, so heavenly minded, no earthly use. Not true. The whole point in the New Testament is that we are receiving a kingdom. And if we are receiving a kingdom rather than trying to battle to create one, right, that's a big difference because here's our, we don't need it too much. We don't need to win too much. As in, like, our backs aren't against the wall to the point that it's hopeless if we lose. Jesus is coming back. And and I think that just softens us a little bit and says we will love our enemies and pray for those who oppose us. And forgiveness is a key issue. Douglas Murray, uh, you know, is a, a conservative English gay man. He's a very interesting man to read. And, and He's a fabu- fabulous writer. Fabulous. He's mm. a great writer. And he just said we don't know who... Redemption's gone from our culture. We don't know who could uh, forgive us. Uh, we don't know where to go for that. And the only place we ever, he ever saw it was the church, which is interesting. And so Tim Keller's last book was called Forgive. How can, how can I and why should I? And I think that's a prescient book because I think a forgiving community is going to be very attractive to people who have been cancelled by someone and never saw it coming. Mm. Do we know what our post-Christian reality is? If there is such a thing as a post-Christian reality, do we know what it's going to look like, Steve? Oh, if I, yeah, well, that's a good point. My, my, my upcoming book, Future Proof, tries to pitch at that, right? So you kind of want to get into a DeLorean car. You want a DeLorean car from 2053 from Back to the Future to arrive in your church car park and bring you to 2053 so you can see it, so you can come back and put it into action, right? You're not going to get that, but you, you kind of, uh, you know, you've got the scriptures talking about how life's going to be, but for the details... Apart from the fact that we won't have hoverboards still, which I'm a bit bitter about, I think what you're going to find, and I'm writing this, is we're going to have an increasingly atomized, lonely culture. One quarter of all households in Australia are single dwelling and people are lonely. And people aren't lonely. People aren't living alone simply because they have to. They're living alone because they want to. They don't trust other people enough to be around them. So a church that's able to do life during the week for other people rather than just be friendly on Sunday, going to kick it out of the park if you get it right. I think we're also in a polarised setting. So you've got what I call a, a post-Christian setting won't look like a pre-Christian setting because you've got the framework of Christianity. And I think this is where Mark Sayers, the Melbourne pastor, talks about the progressive narrative wants the kingdom without the king. Or as Glenn Scrivener would say, we all breathe Christian air in our frameworks. But if we can junk Jesus, that'd be fine. So what you get is a very justice-oriented culture with little mercy, right? And Mm. little insight into one's own injustices. The flip side of that will be what I call Christendom without Christ. You're going to get a hard reactionary right perspective on this. And Ross Duthat, the Catholic writer from the New York Times, said, if you're worried about what the Christian alt-right looks like, wait till you see the non-Christian alt-right. And we're seeing the rise of that. 
right? So I think you're going to get these two polarizing sets which try to pull the culture through power to its own devices, to their own ends. I think yes, I, was going to, I see you've been reading Tom Wolfe's Christian Nationalism. I'm, I'm no, loath to launch into the subject on this podcast, but initial thoughts. Yeah, I, I started to read it and I was going, wow, it, it feels casually racist for a start. But it feels like an over-realized eschatological push because in it, to say things like the chapter three was about you know the case for nationalism and then chapter four is basing itself on the case for Christian nationalism. But to say in a text, we should stop migration from other Christian nations if it doesn't suit us, I'm going, that's saying that the nation is more important than the new kingdom people. And how do you police... A Christian nation if some people don't want to be Christian. I, I just don't trust human nature enough because all revolutions end up doing this. One set of rules for the leaders, another set of rules for those they lead. And that is, as I read the book, that's what it reads like. Yes, I think the whole position, I haven't read the book, but um, I've read uh, read critiques by people who have, and I think the whole thing is very concerning indeed. Rito, do you want to ask another question? React I'm just trying to think of the, the the previous discussion, you know, kind of going back to that, that, you know, what does the future look like? And in some senses, I think the church needs to get back to what it should be, which is being the church and loving people, loving those those around them and, and not I think we were distracted during the nineties and the two thousands with the big the big things, particularly celebrity. And I think this is our moment to to say, who are we again and how do we love the people around us? What what do you yeah, kind of, and so it doesn't matter what the future. What I'm trying to say is, it doesn't really matter what the future is like, does it? That's right. And look, this is an interesting thing too that Tim Keller has said in the past that you you have to listen to your critics. And one of the things our critics said, our critics said, is you created victims, you created a celebrity culture, and you created a power culture, and you didn't listen to the voices or allow the freedoms of the people who are now in power who are trying to curtail your freedoms. So. Suck it up, Christians. And I, and I think, see, I want to make sure that we disciple our next generation of young people to be able to cope with the rigours of what 2053 will be like, which will be more bracing. And they will have exactly the same resources we have. But that resource at its core is God's Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> he is our resource and he will be there for them. But I think so. I do not think that the bad life is as likely to take our next generation away from Jesus as much as the good life is. Mm. And that's critical. If you're going to church once every three weeks, because on the other week you've got a great sporting event, and then the next week you're down at the weekend or beach house, don't be surprised if your kids think that the good life doesn't look like Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on to the future proofing bits, if we may, in the 10 minutes or so we've got left. Um, has God future-proofed the church already, Stephen? Do you oh, think? 100%, yeah. Well, I've read the back of the book and we win, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> But we don't, we don't win. Jesus has won for us. And the point of the future in Jewish thinking was that the, the, the Holy Spirit was the gift of the future. And on the last day, there would be salvation for uh, God's people, judgment of the nations, and the Holy Spirit poured out. And we've seen all three of those things happen at the cross, the resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The future has been dragged to today and is pulling us towards it. So that, that would be my framework of hope about the future. Now, along the way, there are strategies. There's the tactical, you know, because we're in the fog of war. And how do we do it? So what I've been saying, and I, I'm using a, 
couple of terms that some friends of mine are saying is we go, we can outrelate our purpose and you know out, give have more meaning in our culture, and I think that's critical because it's going to be churches as they just live their lives in communities that people are going to go. There's something different about that. Now I'm not for saying quietism or political inaction, but I am saying uh, be aware that that can go so far and the public square might be not open to us. But in the West, we live in the luxury of having the public square open to us for a long time. Most Christians in the world at the moment do not have access to the public square like Westerners do. Very interesting point, isn't it? Should we be, I mean, I don't want to spend too long on this because I know your book's coming out in February and perhaps we That's could okay. talk Perhaps yeah, we could talk right. to you again. Perhaps we could talk to you again when the, the book does come out. But yeah. That would be fascinating. Should we be creating alternative systems? I mean, I know a lot of folk around me are thinking about this and talking about this, creating alternative, be they alternative education systems or whatever. What's your thinking about that? I don't discount that. And what I've noticed is that as, as Christian schools open to more non-Christian students, Christian parents are taking their children out of Christian schools and homeschooling them or doing micro-schooling in their classical education setting. Because here's, here's what I think we do need to remember, that and Rory Shiner of the Gospel Coalition Australia put it well a few years ago when he said, uh, the secular culture isn't out-thinking us, it's out-discipling us. And our, our, it's, it's a discipleship program of Netflix and you expressive individualism and be your best self and express your identity. And the people most discipling students who are Christian in a Christian school are not the teachers, it's their peers. It, it's, it runs that way. So we have to be on to a discipling program that's more formative uh, and not outsource discipleship of our kids to schools. It's got to happen around the table. Uh, in our churches as kids see their parents relate to each other. It's got to look more meaningful than what's on offer in the world. It doesn't have to outthink the world. It just has to outform the world. One of the uh, interesting things I think that happened, people ask me about this, and I say more Christians in the media, please, because uh, in the 60s, I think it was, Christian leaders were saying to Christians who were in the arts or in the media, don't go, and, don't go into the arts, it's ungodly, worldly, don't go into the media, it's ungodly. And as a result, what did we end up with? A totally, well, pretty much secular media, secular Hollywood, you know. It was exactly a crazy strategy. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, you know, I grew up in... Uh, partly in Northern Ireland and partly in Australia. And I remember my great-grandmother, uh, obviously she was still, um, my goodness, had too many too many generations of greats because everyone married young and had kids young. But she heard I wanted to be a journalist and she said, why would you want to do that? That's worldly. And then I hear someone else who's a major leader say, don't write novels, go into ministry, there's time in heaven to write novels. And lo and behold, where do most people get their stories about what life's about from? Church? No. Novels. Uh, the arts. It's culture's upstream of politics. Our politics is responding to the culture. And we have vacated that space or filled it with very twee, Christianized versions, which are generally quite lame. Views of, you know, we haven't engaged in the arts in a way that we should have. I, I'm passionate about this because I feel like we have lost our role as a storyteller in the culture. Yes. I mean, C.S. Lewis would have understood the power of story and, and novels and fiction. Uh, I mean, you consider the church for what, 1,500, 1,800, even 1,900 years set the agenda for the culture. And look, my daughter goes to Notre Dame University in Perth, and it's a Catholic university, and she's doing literature and history, medieval history. 
And she's knocking it out of the park for a couple of reasons. You can't have a view of medieval history without having a view of God, right? And she said, people don't have a framework who she's studying with. And when they came to C.S. Lewis in children's literature, she was the only student in the class who knew that Aslan was supposed to be Jesus. Yes. Everyone else was, no way. You know, like, it's like, and and then she says too, the lives of her friends are all over the place. And she's at church. She's got older friends, younger friends. She's helping out with some of the young kids. And she's got these relationships that are thick and deep. And she said her friends at university just don't know how to do relationships. I mean, this is a generation that won't answer the phone, right? So, <laughs> you know, it, I think there's a, people are retreating into themselves through fear and loneliness and ang anxiety is a massive issue in the culture. Oh, for sure. And COVID and the whole pandemic has just exaggerated that. So That's about it. And my wife said that. Yeah. yeah She's absolutely. a clinical psychologist. And she said before the pandemic, anxiety was the chief issue. And now it's just been put on steroids. Yeah, we're hearing that from from so many guests of our guests from the state, certainly. Ian, final questions, comments for Steve? Kind of as pastors, how do we kind of build our young people in particular? Kind of how do we prepare them for that future? Because it's you know it is the intergenerational relationships in particular isn't it um, but particularly it's it's building strong families in that and not not in the traditional way that we've kind of heard but it's more just the be a family you know kind of spend time opening the bible together and spend time e eating together and doing doing all of those types of yes and and i think that's exactly right and look I know there's a push, oh, you know, the idolatry of the nuclear family in the church. I go, well, whatever is an idol, you end up, when it lets you down, demonizing. And so don't make it an idol. Just make it something that's a gift under God. And I'd say, well, what's the alternative? Good families live together who are not closed but are open. So good families that are strong at the center are very free to have open borders to allow other people into their family life. And I think once you do that, and you don't see the family as this little pleasure cruise that's there to seek its own experiences, families start to work well. They become exceptionally good mediating institutions. And I think Christian families that can do that in a church setting uh, will do the intergenerational thing well. And I think, too, as pastors, it's saying clear some clutter and give people some white space because they are frantic, frenetic, and if you think another program is going to help them over the next 30 years, you're off the trolley. Two things in the week, regular church attendance in a way that's meaningful and thick and maybe food afterwards. And uh, it isn't just all head knowledge, but it's not all emotional. It's a bit of both. And one other thing in the week where people get together for food to talk about how they're going in line with the scriptures and not a mini church service, just together. And that would almost be enough if you're doing good life together. I think. Yeah, oh, no, I know. I think that's fabulous. Oh, we could talk for hours, couldn't we? Steve McAlpine, thank you so much from City to City, Australia, and a blogger. Where can people find your blog, Steve? Uh, the uh, humbly and your name, website. Steve yeah, the humbly name, stephenmcalpine.com, with a PH, Stephen with a PH. So stephenmcalpine.com is where I blog, and City to City, Australia, there's, um, there's a cultural engagement tab on City to City, Australia site, and uh, people can get in touch with me there. And um, on all the usual socials, but I'm not exceptionally socially adept. How about that? <laughs> uh, I, I can relate to that. And his book, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't, is still available from our friends at The Good Book Company. Yay, go The Good Book Company. 
doing good work there. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Rito, uh, Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes. Steve and Ian, thank you so much both. Thanks so much. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.